You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. So exactly two years ago, Becky, Caleb, and I were in London to celebrate Caleb's grad from high school. So beyond the usual touristy things, some big moments for us were we went to Westminster Chapel, where Martin Lloyd-Jones used to preach, and we just happened to run into Becca Bryce's parents randomly in the city of 10 million people. We just happened to run into them, and that was pretty special. And then we went to a really spectacular worship service at... Uh, Royal Albert Hall, which had always been a dream of mine to see a concert in Royal Albert Hall, but the fact that it was a praise night was just absolutely phenomenal. But the most fantastic by far was going on a day-long London Christian heritage tour. Here we saw sites associated with Tyndale, Whitfield, and Wesley. And then we went over to the British Museum where we saw items linked to biblical characters such as David, Jeremiah, or Nehemiah, Hezekiah, and actually Apostle Paul. The most impactful part of that day, though, was when we visited a small church in the city of London called St. Mary's of Woolnoth. This church is not in anybody's uh, tourist radar book, except for a select few who really know a bit of its history. You see, this is a church where ex-slave trader and writer of Amazing Grace, John Newton, was the rector for over 28 years. People who know me know I'm not that prone to being emotional, but I can tell you that I was a little shaken by, by being there. This shaking was quickly overshadowed by feeling completely undone as a tour guide came over to me and took me aside and said, I want to get you to take a picture of you up on the, on the pulpit where Newton used to preach. I was freaking out. I, I'm not worthy. I am really not worthy of that. To which he quietly replied, you're right. None of us are actually worthy. And that's the stance I have this morning. I don't feel worthy of coming before you to bring the message. I don't have any special insight. I don't have any special training. But what I do have is a, is a savior that redeemed me from that life to death. And I have his written word. And that's going to be the basis of what we're going to study today. So the first scripture reference I'm going to give you this morning is Acts 17.11. So for you who take notes, please put this at the top of the page. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So what I'm asking you to do here is to hold me to account. Take your Bibles, keep them open, so you can see if what I'm saying is holding up and holding true to scripture. Please just join me in prayer for a moment. Father, we acknowledge your sovereignty. You are the creator of all things and worthy of all praise and honor. I pray that my speech would illuminate the truths found in your word and bring glory to your name. Amen. So we're continuing our journey in the book of Colossians. Last week, John spoke on growing in the gospel as we looked at Paul's thankfulness for how the gospel had grown in the Colossian church. Today, we'll be looking at the rest of that section of scripture, which is typically labeled as Paul's prayer for the Colossians. So let's turn to Colossians chapter 1, and then I'll read out verses 9 through 14, which is our text today. 
And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So I've, I've entitled this sermon, New Life in Christ. So let's think about for a minute John Newton. How could a man go from being a vile slave trader to the author of one of the most famous hymns in the world? This is a radical transformation that only the word of God could accomplish. However, John did not receive salvation one day and the next day pick up a pen and write out Amazing Grace. The process of John Newton's growth, or any believer's new life in Christ, is outlined in Paul's prayer for the Colossians here in verses 9 to 14. So, a new life in Christ starts with salvation, but as we see, knowing God, the power of God, and the grace of God are all parts of the transformation from a new believer in Christ to becoming a mature Christian. The first major point is knowing God. Having a proper understanding of who God is is crucial to our new life in Christ. I have seen that in, in the improper view of God can lead you to having an improper view of yourself, an improper view of your sin, and not surprisingly, an improper view of your salvation. In the following section, we will see how knowing God can aid you in your Christian maturity. Let's focus in on verses 9 through 10. One of the first things we see here is Paul's concern for the Colossians had led him to include them in his regular prayer time. He knows that even though they are progressing in their faith, he should not stop but to continue to pray for their progress. In the evangelical world I grew up in the 80s and 90s, it was fashionable to pray for someone's salvation. Sadly, though, after we'd heard about a decision for Christ, the prayer would stop, and we'd just look for another person to pray for. Paul's words here tell us of the seriousness of praying for new believers. They are facing many growing pains and are certainly the most acceptable to false teaching and false doctrine. So when we hear about a new believer, let's make sure we take the time to pray for their spiritual growth, as Paul does here in Colossians. His prayer is focused on the church body growing in spiritual maturity. He encourages the Colossians to stand firm in their faith, grounded in the power of the gospel that they have already received. He prays that they might continue the course that they have begun. Growing and maturing in Christ is what we want to see from the whole church, not just certain members here and there or individuals. It's a corporate thing. It's for all believers. A cycle of Christian growth is started with this knowledge of God's will. An increased knowledge of God's will will lead to living or walking correctly, bearing more fruit, which then leads to an increased desire for things of God, such as his word, which, again, 
drives the cycle all over again. The knowledge of God must come from God. So any other sources, such as our thoughts, our feelings, they're not going to give us a true picture of God is. That's because we are sinners. The danger we see in Colossians, and we read in verses 2 to 8, is that they say that, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So a posture where information about God that doesn't come from his word is dangerous and to be avoided. We will see this later on in Colossians in more detail in the upcoming weeks. God the Father is the source of wisdom and knowledge, and full knowledge can be found in Jesus Christ. As we read in Colossians 2.3, And the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom we are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Ephesians 1.7 says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowing him. Deep study and time in God's word leads to the knowledge of God's will. A mind filled with this knowledge will also be able to understand godly behavior. With this wisdom, a person will understand how to apply knowledge to the situations in life. So, a life growing in understanding and knowledge will be growing in their walk as well. Let's remind ourselves what verse 10 here said again. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So when I'm talking about walk, I mean a person's pattern of everyday behavior. Or another way to say it is a path of choices that one makes in life. In Ephesians 4.1 it says, I therefore, therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So walking worthy speaks of ambassadorship. Whatever we do, whatever we say reflects on Christ. Each time we go to work or do anything out in the world, it says something about Christ. I've heard stories how business owners bristle when one, of, when one talks about being a Christian. They pull open a file drawer full of unpaid bills of Christian clients. Ask yourself, what does, what does our walk look like? How do we even know if we're walking a good, good walk? Here are some features of a, good, of a good walk, many of which we just read about in Ephesians. So humility, purity, contentment, gentleness, patience, and bearing one another in love. These are marks of that. So again, how are we doing on these? A growing Christian should be showing improvement in their walk as they increase their knowledge of God. Time spent in the Bible with godly study habits and healthy prayer habits have a direct impact on our daily walk. This may sound like a corporate slogan, but it's really true here in a spiritual sense. What you believe leads to how you behave. Further along in the verse it says, bearing fruit in every good work. 
Bearing fruit is a life that is sharing the gospel and seeing new converts to Christ. Good works in this context refers more to witnessing to non-believers instead of doing the typical acts of kindness as you may expect. So good works and bearing fruit run hand in hand as witnessing good works will lead to bearing fruit. When we are abiding in Christ, which means we're allowing his words to fill our mind, direct our will, and transform our affections, sharing the gospel is something a Christian would be doing more and more frequently. As our prayer life and reading show an increased maturity, doing good works and then bearing fruit would be more commonplace. And to finish off verse 10, it says, and increasing in the knowledge of God. A new Christian should be making forward momentum in his growth in the knowledge of God. There are, of course, times of dry spills, but that should not be typical of your spiritual life. You should be able to say that my knowledge of God has increased over the last five years. Increased in knowledge of his word is critical for spiritual growth, as we see in Peter, 1 Peter 2, verse 2, which says, Like newborn infants longing for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. So, how do we tell if we're growing as a Christian? I'm going to give you four marks that will help each of us to see if there's growth there. First and foremost, there should be an increasing love for his word, the Bible. This is probably the easiest one for us to measure as well. Does your Bible sit by the door where you left it last Sunday? Or is it in a place of prominence, easily, easily accessible and well used? As you read more of the Bible, you should have an increased understanding of what you're reading as well. A second mark is a life that is characterized by increasing obedience. 1 John 2, 3 to 5 says, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him the love of God has truly been perfected. So, it's easier and easier to obey things that you're hearing or reading in the Bible. For example, you read a verse that maybe you've read 20 times before. Suddenly, that today convicts you to obey. Or in a practical way, you're showing more and more respect for that hard-nosed supervisor at work. A third mark is increased faith. It's easier to believe or stand on the promises that you read in the Bible. When you're facing a trial, perhaps it's easier for you to believe now than it was two years ago. That's great. That's mark of growth. The last mark is a greater love. Do you have increased care and concern for those around you? Philippians 1.9 says, This I pray, that, you may, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment. So what does that look like? Maybe you've driven past that homeless guy on your way to work for years. But in the past months, you finally notice that he's there. And perhaps in the last few weeks, you've started empathizing for him. And now you've decided the next week, you're going to have a stop and see if he needs anything. That's an example of greater love. So to wrap up point one of knowing God, in a new life in Christ, moving from that point in infancy and salvation to a life that's mature by having a proper knowledge of God is huge. Knowing God more actually helps us to increasingly understand that he does most of the work with the assistance of the Holy Spirit. 
Let's put this again in simple terms. I'm sorry again, this sounds like a slogan. The more you know, the more you grow. I've talked a lot about what steps happens in growing in Christian maturity. And that can sound daunting. You probably wonder, how can I do that? Well, as you read in verse 11, the power of God is the biggest factor on how this is accomplished. Verse 11 says, May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. Spiritual strength is God's power manifested in us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Christ told the disciples that they had received power after the Holy Spirit came upon them, which is what we see in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Just as Paul now prays for this power for the Colossians, he did similar. He prayed for the spiritual strength of the Ephesians. In Ephesians 3.6 we read, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. This power allows us to walk worthy, bearing fruit and growing in the knowledge of God. Don't think of this power as a massive lightning bolt of energy that you receive upon conversion. It's not a one-time shot. A simple way to think of it is this. It's like the, how food is a flow of fuel for your body. We could not begin to intake all the food we need for one, one, day, for one week at one sitting. But a regular intake of food is best for our bodies and makes us more effective. Similarly, a regular diet of God's word and a time in prayer will sustain and it will grow us. Knowing that we have this power manifested in us through the Holy Spirit should be a huge source of encouragement for us. We can trust that he will provide the power to grow in our faith, that he will give us the tools we need. This takes a huge burden off us, since we don't have to whip up enough emotions to love that neighbor or force ourselves to obedient or do enough good deeds to make ourselves feel better. We have a power that is available to all believers in the Holy Spirit and knowing this should give us hope and peace. That is what Paul prayers, prays for the believers in Rome. In Romans 15, 13, it says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The second half of verse 11 talks about the joyous endurance of trials. For all endurance and patience with joy. I, I really couldn't find a better example of, of how to explain this endurance than what I read in one of the commentaries. So I'm just going to straighten out repeat it. Endurance is what faith, hope, and love bring to an apparently impossible situation. So eternal trials like a bad diagno diagnosis, a natural disaster, crop failure, accidents, these are examples of that. In general, these types of trials are ones where we, we can't yield much uh, or have any control over. Growing up on a farm, I remember my dad often watching the cloud formations in the summer on a hot day just to see if hail clouds were forming. There was not one thing we could do to change the outcome if hail did come. However, when we look at things from a spiritual perspective, we see we can trust God's promises. 
and let that guide our stance in our reaction to these trials. Think for, how, for a second how muscles grow. A well-exercised muscle can lift more, pull more, and perform all around better. Strength in our spiritual lives that has been grown through spiritual disciplines can endure more. So, as the storm of life swirls around you, recall the many promises of God and his word. One of the promises I held on to with a vengeance after going through a terrifying period of depression was 2 Timothy 1.17. For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. And I'll admit that I held on to that verse driving in this morning as well. Might I suggest that you make a list of the verses that tell you about the promises of God. Memorize them. And if you must, on those really hard days, just go back in the Bible and make sure they're still in there. So, back to our verse. How does endurance differ from patience? They really don't sound that much different. Again, back to the commentary. Patience is what we show with an apparently impossible person or people. I think we've all seen the t-shirt that says, the more people I meet, the more I love my dog. Why are so people so hard to deal with? Well, the simple answer is that we're all sinners. And even those who profess to know Christ are sinners who have just admitted that and are in various stages of their sanctification. Some of the hardest relationships are ones with people that you have to deal with on a regular basis. It's easy to blow off and forget that numbskull who butted in on you on the supermarket line. You're likely never going to see them again. But how does one handle family members at each other's throats, spewing the vilest accusations against each other over a potential inheritance, over Facebook for the whole world to see? That was uh, one example of the few relational challenges that I had to deal with this week. Those relationships at work, or even your friends, can be overly complicated and often painful. Once again, our response to these situations should be of love and of patience. Our stance should be held to a higher standard when dealing with fellow believers. Here's a couple of verses that help put that in perspective. Ephesians 4, verses 2 to 4 says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Romans 15, 5 says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. So in general, we have more control when we deal with people patiently than we do enduring a trial. It's the same power of the Holy Spirit, though, that allows us to respond correctly in both types of situations. Allowing the Holy Spirit to aid in remembering and to recall those verses which speak to how to deal with people should be the ones we hold close to. Hold short accounts with your brothers in Christ, being quick to forgive and not too easily to take offense. Verse 11 ends up, ends with, with joy. This does not mean that we should slap on a smile when truly tragic or challenging things happen in our lives. This speaks more of an inner joy, such, or such a deep trust in God's promises in his word, that you can bear the pain knowing as he is in control. Paul himself did this, as we see in Acts 16.25, when he and Silas were locked in prison. 
About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. So Paul had a deep understanding of God's promises, and having a trust in those promises shaped Paul's viewpoint. We see in Philippians 1, 21 to 25, where his growth in this knowledge had led him to be able to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am able to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul is at peace, bearing the hardest things of this earthly life to aid those he was evangelizing and discipling. His preference was to be with Christ, but he knew his role was to continue to do the work of an evangelist until such time as he's going to be called home. So back to thinking about Paul being in prison and having a worship night. He could sing and praise God because he was so solid in his knowledge of God that his, he was likely to have thought he was going to die soon. And for him, that was a great encouragement. Praise God, I'm going to see Christ soon. And then he starts singing. And although we do not see this in the text, I can see Paul taking his jailbreak as another opportunity to praise God with the mindset, well, I guess I'm not supposed to go home soon. My work's not done. But I sure can use this miraculous situation to share this gospel with the stressed-out jailer. So to wrap up point two, let's remember that the Lord provides the growth cycle in our spiritual lives strengthening us in power so that we can endure trials and have the patience with contentious relationships with an attitude of joy because we know that it is for his glory and our ultimate benefit. We should pray for ourselves and one another based on the way Paul prayed as verse 11 is a great prayer outline. So who can you think that should be, you should be praying for in this way? I challenge us to see how our growth would be impacted by changing the subject matter of our prayers. Our shift in our prayer focus from physical needs to having a prayer focus on spiritual strength is an important step in maturing in a new life in Christ. A vital part of any prayer is thanking God for his amazing grace in our lives. And that we will impact in our next point, which is the grace of God. I want to go back and consider John Newton, his transformation and maturity in the faith that allowed him to pen these words. His understanding of grace is apparent, as we can see how he viewed his life and his journey in faith as dependent on God's mercy. He really is an example of a new life in Christ, fully developed in the context of how we read the whole section of Scripture today. Verses 2 and 3 of Amazing Grace spell it out so eloquently. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home." Let's now look, have a look at Colossians 1, verses 12 to 14, and see how God's grace and what he has done in our salvation plus the work he continues to do in our sanctification, and that, how that should bring us to a total point of thanksgiving, as is we see with John Newton. 
12 to 14 says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transformed us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have, re have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What does scripture say about giving thanks? Obviously it says that giving thanks is important. Ephesians 5.20 says, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. But what should make Christians the most, most thankful, and I think that's what this verse is truly about, is the salvation work of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.4 says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. Before we get too far in explaining why we should be thankful for salvation, let's have a quick look at some scriptures where we can get a basic understanding of the gospel and salvation. The gospel is the good news that Jesus remedied our sin problem by living a sinless life, paying the required price for our sin on the cross. We are deemed to be saved once we acknowledge that Christ is the only solution for our sin problem and accept Christ's payment as a fact. A big part of this, though, is that we need to repent or turn away from our sin and live our lives anew for Christ and for God's glory. Putting it in a different way, the scriptures will say, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 10.13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. Romans 10.9-10 because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And John 1.12, But to all who did receive him, who believed his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So if you need to talk to someone more about this, please give John or one of the elders a talk after church, and we'd love to help you further understand the gospel and salvation. Paul sums up in greater detail as to why we should be so thankful for our salvation with three truths. The first truth is inheritance. Before God saved us by grace, we were unqualified for our inheritance. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 5, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in, what, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. 
An inheritance is something we are given, not on our own merit, but because we are in the family of the giver. In our lives before salvation, we were not in the family of God. I think I've told some of you about my former assistant, Matt, at work. I think it's not for the reasons I'm going to talk about here, but more about his work habits. But this guy left, uh, uh, led a minimalist life. In his apartment for furniture, he had a futon, a coffee table, and for whatever reason, a set of winter tires. That's it. A couple years ago, he started a relationship with a woman that he met online. And as things took their course, the relationship developed, and they decided to get married. So time came to meet her, her parents. And at that point, he found that maybe his girlfriend had maybe downplayed their income a bit. Because for their wedding, her dad gave them $1 million cash after throwing an extravagant wedding that cost more than $100,000 and had 800 guests. He's now on the will to be in a position to inherit somewhere north of $100 million. Did Matt do anything to to merit this? No, not at all. He was grafted into the family because the father sees Matt through the eyes of his own child. That is how God sees us when we come into salvation. He looks at us through Christ, and we have the inheritance because and through Christ. What an amazing position we are in. How could we not give thanks and praise to God because of this? It is truly mind-blowing. The second reason we should be so thankful for our salvation is deliverance, meaning here to be rescued. We read in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that we have been instantly delivered. It's not a gradual process like sanctification. It's an instant one that we call justification. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new, new has come. The third reason to us to be thankful is something we call transference. Through his death, Jesus delivered us from darkness to light. So transference here is defined as the removal of sinners, being in the kingdom of darkness, moving to the kingdom of God upon salvation. In a sense, we've been moved from one team to another. But it is better than that. It's better than being moved from a bottom feeder NHL team to a top contender. Not that this can happen in the hockey world, but it's like having a postseason transfer to the team that already won the championship, and now you're entitled to have your name on the Stanley Cup. You didn't have to do anything to have your name on the cup, but because of the team, you were able to, to claim that. So the victory here has already been won at the cross, and now with that transfer, you're entitled to the rights and privileges of the winning team. Our responsibility in the kingdom is to be proper ambassadors of the king. 1 Thessalonians 2.12 says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So thinking back to our NHL analogy, wouldn't we be the best representatives for the team if we knew how impossible it was to make that team and now we're on it? We would sing the team praises at any opportunity and have an immense amount of gratitude. And that's the perspective we should have when looking at Christ and what he's done for us. Finally, our verse ends with, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption means to deliver payment of a ransom. For example, freeing slaves from bondage. 
Redemption results in the forgiveness of sins, as we see in Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Jesus Christ redeemed us. He paid the price that was required to free us slaves to sin and put us in the kingdom of light. This is utterly amazing news. It is a debt we could not pay. I think we often can't comprehend the gravity of this and our lack of thankfulness shows. I know it does in my heart. Let us think again about that NHL championship team that we've been transferred to. Just say for a moment that this team had a unique feature which allowed his team members to ask members from other teams to join. We'd be all over that. Well, that's the stance we should have being on Christ's winning team. We can tell others about our winning team because of the gospel of Christ. But due to our lack of knowledge of God and a poor understanding of his power, it leads us to being less than thankful for God's grace and then a tepid attitude towards sharing the gospel. That is another reason why Paul is praying for the Colossians to grow in their new life. They need to grow in these things to understand the team they're now on and what their role is. Let us pray that we will be praying for growth in this. It is vital to our own effectiveness as members of Christ's winning team. To wrap up, we live in a world where people who call themselves Christian are increasingly biblically illiterate. Scripture will be ignored, paraphrased, talked around, or taken out of context in many churches this morning. Prayers will be self-focused about physical wants and sadly not even prayed to God. This is tragic, and we can see in Paul's prayer the passion he has for the Colossians not to get off track and caught in a similar trap. But there is hope. God is faithful and has given the Holy Spirit to aid in our growth. If we as individuals and as a church spend that time in deep studying God's word and change the focus of our prayer life, we will start to grow and avoid some of the pitfalls that we see in some churches today. I believe some of those pitfalls are because of the biblical ignorance. That growth begins a cycle of spiritual maturity that will continue to build off those first steps. Knowing God by the power of God and being thankful for God's grace is an essential foundation of a new life in Christ. Let us pray. God, we thank you that Christ's death on our behalf paid the price to redeem us. Through that sacrifice, our sins have been forgiven. We have been granted an internal inheritance. We have been delivered from the power of darkness and have been made subject of Christ's kingdom. Those wonderful truths should cause us to give thanks to God continually, but we admit too often it does not. Help us to be filled with the knowledge of your will. Help us to know that only when believers are controlled by that knowledge that they can walk worthy of the Lord. Regularly remind us that such knowledge is required for fruitful life, spiritual growth, and joyful endurance and trials. We acknowledge that you are the power that allows us to understand it all and that you will provide the strength to endure this maturing process. Help us to grow then in our knowledge and understanding of your grace and aid us in becoming thankful team members who are excited to share the good news of the gospel. We pray these things in and through the name of Christ Jesus.
whose sacrifice made this all possible. 